Hi, this is Dan Rao, founder and brand strategist at DSR Branding, and you're listening to Discover Someone Remarkable, conversations worth sharing. Join me as I interview passionate founders and industry experts, people who think differently, challenge the status quo, and are building a legacy. People who I consider truly remarkable. In today's episode, I sit down with Dr. Chris Rao to discuss blockchain technology. Before I go on, yes, Chris is one of my older brothers, and yes, he's far more intelligent than I am. To give you a bit of background, Chris is a postdoctoral research fellow at the University of British Columbia's Sorter School of Business, and the Head of Education and Professional Development at Siberium Group, a Vancouver-based technology and innovation consultant. He has a Doctorate of Science in Technology, majoring in Strategy and Venturing from Aalto University in Finland. His research, teaching and consulting work center around digital disruption and transformation and strategizing in volatile and ambiguous environments. Chris has been researching and working in the blockchain field since 2017 and routinely runs workshops on blockchain from a business perspective for undergraduate, graduate, executive and professional audiences. In this episode, Chris explains in simple terms what blockchain is and some current use cases. He clarifies some myths and misconceptions about blockchain and cryptocurrency, discusses what smart contracts are and how they could be used. We discuss how blockchain could reduce fraud and wastage in digital marketing and how it could help individuals protect their own private information. I hope you enjoy Discover Someone Remarkable, Discovering Blockchain with Dr. Chris Rao. Chris, thanks for coming on. You do a few things at UBC and you also do consulting, but what made you focus on blockchain? So yeah, like you said, I'm sort of focused on disruptive and emerging technologies and digital transformation in general. So that's more broadly, but blockchain in particular is, I think, one of these technologies that's firstly quite transformational. It's quite foundational. Just as the internet sort of changed the way we access and share information, blockchain is something that can change the way we uh, access and share value. So that kind of interest, that drew me to it in the first place because what it's capable of doing is actually fundamentally transforming quite a lot of the things we do and quite a lot of things we do online. The other part of it is that because I am teaching at the same time and a lot of the consulting work I do is actually just education and professional development. So blockchain is something that's really poorly understood. There's a lot of myths, a lot of misconceptions. It's inherently confusing. Disruptive technologies are, in general, inherently confusing. When they come out, they're often inferior to, to other types of technology. When they first come out, you know, that's kind of the definition of what disruptive technology was when it was originally conceived. So they come out, they're a bit inferior. People can't quite grasp them, and they sort of start to discount them. And then we build this sort of hype around them at some point, inevitably become disappointed. So I like being able to sort of demystify and, and help people understand things clear up some of these myths and misconceptions, those kinds of things. So blockchain is kind of good for those, for those two reasons, basically. <laughs> One is in, in the nature of the technology itself and what it means for organizing and for business models and industry. And the other is it's interesting to explain to people. It's kind of fun. What type of people would you explain it to and what audience do you speak to about blockchain? Yeah, so, well, obviously students at UBC and different places, I do quite a few public talks just because People are generally interested in this, especially when there was kind of the crypto bubble. And after that, there was a lot of interest. But uh, the other audiences, especially in my consulting work, I talk to professionals. So professionals like lawyers and accountants, 
and on behalf of professional organizations. So what they're really interested in is how is this going to change our profession and what is going to happen to accounting due to these technologies. And blockchain does certain things incredibly well that accountants have been doing for a long time. So what does that mean for the accounting profession? And the other is obviously executives. So executives are kind of wondering, what does this mean for me? When do I have to care about this? Executives are busy. So they're thinking, what does this mean for my industry? And uh, when should I start to think about adapting or adopting based on you know, what these technologies are capable of doing? Yeah, great. So before we go much further, can you just um, explain what blockchain is? Yeah, I'll, I'll give it a crack. So <laughs> blockchain in its essence, well, first I can explain what blockchain isn't to clear up one of the major misconceptions. So blockchain is not Bitcoin. Uh, I think most of us kind of understand that already, but the two were conflated for a long time because Bitcoin was the first sort of application of blockchain. You could kind of think of it as if uh, email was the first kind of big application of the internet, but they're not the same thing, obviously. So Bitcoin was, you could think of that in the same way. Blockchain is the technology that enables things like Bitcoin, but they're quite different. One is the sort of technology beneath and the other is the application on top. So what is blockchain? Well, blockchain is just a different way of recording things. So we've been recording things for millennia. We <laughs> Ledgers and records are integral to how we organize and coordinate actions in business and society. So over the millennia, we've changed the way we record things. You know, we used to do things on clay, move to paper, move to digital spreadsheets. But up until now, what these things have had in common is that we've generally relied heavily on one or more record keepers to keep accurate records. So if you think about something, you know, at the societal level, but it's still fairly simple, is a land registry. So you know what I mean by land registry? It's sort of the records of who owns what property in a country. Yeah. For that, we have, you know, a government-sponsored sort of central record keeper, right? So we have a central institution, a land title registry, that's maintained by a government and they keep track of who owns what. So if you want to transfer ownership of your property to someone else, you have to go to the land registry and say, hey, I'm selling this. Can you transfer this ownership to someone else, right? Other types of record keeping sort of arrangements might be, you know, if we have several intermediary record keepers, so we have banks that are basically now a cloud for money. <laughs> so banks would communicate with each other. If I want to send money to your bank, banks would talk to each other and then they would coordinate the change in the records. So we're reliant on intermediaries there. We have other arrangements like supply chains. So if we're talking about something like fish coming through a supply chain, you know, where it's caught, then where it moves through to the wholesaler down to, down to the store and to the, whoever buys it, there's all these different record keepers that are keeping their own records and they're sharing that relevant information with each other. So there's a lot of trust that has to go on along the supply chain in, in these networks that keep records. And they're all responsible for keeping their own records and sharing that relevant information. But yeah, it opens it up to all sorts of things like fraud, just missing records, bad record keeping, things like that. So blockchain in its essence is just a different way to keep records where in these networks, we would have a single sort of distributed digital ledger that everyone can access. So you could think of it as like a Google spreadsheet where everyone has access. So at any time you can see what is the status of the ledger. So for that government example, for the land title registry, it would be who owns what property at what time. And everybody would be able to see this common ledger. And then if you wanted to transfer it, everybody's actually maintaining a copy of the ledger. And when something on the ledger updates, everybody's copy updates. Right? So it's always exactly the same. The difference between that though and a Google Doc or a Google Spreadsheet is that you can't just go in and change it however you want. So 
the data structure in a blockchain is such that it'll only update based on pre-programmed rules. So it becomes very difficult to tamper with. It's a whole kind of other conversation about how that, <laughs> how that data structure actually works. But fundamentally what it is, is that, yeah, it's a shared ledger that everyone can see. And you know the information is sort of uh, immutable and accurate on that. So if then we compare it to what we have with banks, instead of having you know, intermediary banks sending money between one another, we would have a single shared ledger with records of who owns what. And then I could send money to you. So I would try to initiate a transaction on that shared ledger. If I follow the rules and I do it from my kind of account to yours, then everybody's ledger will update. And because it updates on everybody's ledger, there's some actors are kind of doing some work to update it. They're providing some computing power to update the ledger. But there's no single intermediary that controls that. There's no single bank that will initiate that transaction or can hold it up or, you know, there's no single point of failure. So therefore, we can have this, again, sort of single spreadsheet that everyone, you know, all that happens is my column's updated and your column's updated with the new figures. And then same thing in supply chain, right? So if we have that supply chain with, instead of having all these different record holders maintaining their own set of records, we have a single ledger so we can see exactly where that fish has been transferred at different points along the supply chain. Am I making any sense? <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, no, it is. So you touched on the security measures or, you know, like yeah. the idea that it's hard to tamper with. Have people tried to tamper with it? Yeah, it's absolutely they have. <laughs> and it's kind of a testament to the Bitcoin blockchain specifically. So it's closest to that second example that I mentioned. So what they did was they said, we want a distributed ledger that kind of we can use for money transfer. And instead of using fiat currency, instead of like kind of making it... Um, close to American dollars or Australian dollars or whatever. They said, we're going to make something up. We're going to create a digital token. I'm going to call it Bitcoin. And then if it, you know, if we decide it has value, which we kind of decided at some point that it had value, we can use that. And that's basically all it is, is just <laughs> these sets of digital tokens that get recorded and updated, sort of moved around on, on the ledger. Yeah. And, and people try to break into it all the time. The reason that it's secure is because it's distributed, essentially. So because everybody is maintaining a copy, you would have to control more than half the network to try to change something on the ledger, you know, try to corrupt it. So if you wanted to hack more than half the network, you're breaking into, you know, thousands of computers at a single time rather than just going into and breaking into a single bank and then changing the data on this particular service. So that's one thing that makes it secure. The other thing is the thing that actually makes it a blockchain, which is blocks of data. So it updates the ledger are created over time so that everything is sort of solidified and timestamped in a single block and then you move on to the next block. So it becomes incredibly difficult over time. You know, once blocks have been created and they go further and further back, these blocks are linked to each other in such a way that if you were to change something in the past, you would have to change all the subsequent blocks because they're all kind of connected through called a cryptographic hash. But basically it just means that you would be able to see if someone was trying to correct something in the past it would become really obvious. So they would have to not only hack the network, you know, these thousands of computers at one time, they would have to do it multiple times because they would have to change every subsequent block. So the Bitcoin blockchain chain, it updates around every 10 minutes. Other blockchains could update, you know, it's customizable. So they could update every few seconds, every one minute. So you're really kind of doing a lot of work to mess around with these records once they're there. And as the chain becomes longer, so as you go further back in time, and as the network becomes more distributed, it becomes increasingly difficult. So yeah, the short answer is if you have a blockchain and only three actors are updating it, then you have to break into two of them, right? So that's easy enough. So smaller blockchains have been hacked. 
but larger ones, it becomes really difficult. And I will distinguish here. So people, you know, you might say, what about these cryptocurrency hacks? We hear about them all the time. So what typically happens there is they're hacking into people's accounts. They're not changing the data on the blockchain. They're finding people's passwords to so their particular account, and they're using that account to send money to themselves. So what you'll have, if it's a cryptocurrency network, you have, like for an individual, if, if I want to use something, I'll have what's called a wallet, which is basically the way I access my account. And it has kind of a password that I can use to access my account and send money out. When you hear about these cryptocurrency hacks, it's usually the exchange, these cryptocurrency exchanges that have a lot of this money that facilitate you know, buying and selling. They'll have a lot of currency just sitting there, like these cryptocurrencies just sitting there so they can facilitate their market liquidity. And what's happened is usually someone's gone in hack the exchange to find their passwords and then use those passwords to send themselves money from the exchange's account. So they're actually using the technology as it's intended. There's nothing wrong with the blockchain there. It's, it's working perfectly. It's the crappy organizations that set up <laughs> these exchanges and then sit there with piles of money and then don't keep their passwords kind of, um, <laughs> secret from anywhere else. I remember a few years ago, there was a case, I don't know if it was in Canada, with the exchange the owner of the exchange, he died and there was money and people were worried about when I mean, it's terrible he died, but he was also had you know heaps and heaps of money in that exchange and people couldn't get access to it. Is that right? Yeah. So that was what they said at the time. Now, I don't know where that's ended up, but definitely at the time. So what they said was, yeah, an exchange like anyone else would have to have these, they call it a private key. So your wallet will have a public key, which is kind of like the address. Think of a mailbox. That's how people find your, your wallet and put money in. The private key is what allows, it's the password. So it allows you to get look inside and get money out. When he died, so we can talk about whether he died in a bit, but when he passed away, he um, the organization was saying he was the only one with the private keys to the exchange's accounts. So it's kind of like, again, it's not a fault with the technology. It's a fault with the organization. Because if you're you know Coke and you have, you know, there's a secret perhaps a secret ingredient to Coke. I don't know. Is that, is that real? Maybe there is. No. <laughs> um, anyways, whether there's a secret ingredient to Coke, like do you give it to one person and then say, you know, just fill your boots? Like what happens if that something happens to that person, right? You have these things in place. So this is kind of a crappy um, way of sort of um, managing an organization. It'd be like herbs and spices, 11 herbs and yeah. spices. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So who do you give them to? There's got to be some kind of backup plan if something happens. Um, that's why companies don't let their, their C-suite sort of travel together. So basically... That happened. They said that, yeah, he was the only one that there was close to $200 million. They said, you know, equivalent to American dollars in cryptocurrencies in their accounts. And he was the only one with access. So it's not like that money's lost. It's not that, you know, nothing's wrong with it. If it's there, it's there. It's just that no one can access it because without that private key, there's no way to reverse engineer that short of quantum computing maybe we'll get that in a few years but is it disputed whether or not he did or did not die is that the, yeah so, you so that's the before? next thing i mean there's all this kind of talk around it so they he died in rajasthan which is a state in india and uh, he died in a private hospital which i was told if you were going to die and you wanted to that was sort of a convenient way to do it it's sort of happened before that uh, people have tried to fake their deaths using similar kind of ways but that's, I mean, of course, you know, who wants to speculate, right? Like, you know, it's, it's, by the way, it's, it's not a good thing. I was actually interviewed a few times at the time, and that was the first thing everyone asked. <laughs> Did a few media interviews, and they were like, is he really dead? And I'm like, I you know, I'm not really here as an expert on that. It's, uh, <laughs> I'm not going to comment and talk shit about a dead guy. <laughs> um, so, yeah, that's, but there is, I mean, I'm only saying this because a lot of people were sort of, um, yeah, there was a lot of speculation around that, but like, I, I don't have an opinion either way. But the other thing was that a lot of the money that they said was in those accounts was not. 
because I know some blockchain forensics companies. So if, if you know, this ledger is open, if everyone can see all the transactions that have happened previously on the ledger, once you identify what the wallet is, you can see everything that's ever gone in and out of it because you can see those transactions on the shared ledger, right? So if we can identify what wallets Quadriga is the, is the company Quadriga had, then we can see how much money's in them because we can see when they were created, everything that's ever gone in and out, and then you know, take the balance. Turns out they didn't have most of that money that they said they had. So it was sort of filtered out and then moved around. So yeah, there's a, there's a lot of sort of, a lot of loose ends there. But again, like, I mean, I don't know the full story by any means. So, I'd love to talk a little bit about Bitcoin while we're on the cryptocurrency because I remember reading like the first time it was used, you know, and or hearing terrible cases of people throwing out old computers, you know, from 2013 or something and then having to go to the rubbish tip to try to get it off that hard drive or something like that. So what are some things with Bitcoin? Like what are some funny sort of old stories about it that might be you know, interesting for the audience? There's a couple you sort of mentioned. So one was the first time Bitcoin was ever used was a programmer in 2010 paid 10,000 Bitcoin for someone to bring him two pizzas. So let me have a look. I'll just pull it up. So that 10,000 Bitcoin today is 115 and a half billion Australian dollars. So I don't know. I mean, I hope those pizzas good are pizza. pretty good or, you know, whether <laughs> they still have it, who knows. They call it pizza day now. So that was the first time Bitcoin was used before it had no value. Again, this is something that we made up, right? So it's, it's something, you know, you, you invent an asset. Like I said before, so bit, like blockchains can record anything. And I think the fixation with cryptocurrency is that Bitcoin was the first example of it and they made something up to record. So a lot of people thought that, oh, this is a, this is a ledger to record money or this is a ledger to, cr- to record pretend assets or you know, tokens or something that's purely digital. But it, it, can, it can record anything you want. Bitcoin itself was made, it sort of came out of the 2008 financial crisis. A lot of the motivation behind it was to, it's, it's nothing new. There's been these kinds of people looking for this kind of digital money and decentralized currencies for a long time. It's, um, they call them the cypherpunks and, and there's a few iterations of it. But there's, this goes back to like the 80s and 90s as well, maybe even before that. So they've tried to have these kinds of digital cash beforehand. The problem was that the technology wasn't there to support it. So there wasn't any way that you could actually guarantee that if you said you held value, previously you would have to rely on a trusted third party to authenticate that. And if you wanted to send value to someone else online, you would have to rely on a trusted third party. Now we have the blockchain, which can update automatically and it doesn't require, there's no single point of failure there. So of course it lends itself to that kind of you know, a monetary application. Let's create a currency. We could even, I mean, instead of Bitcoin, we could just say, let's put the US dollar or the Australian dollar onto the blockchain. And many central banks are actually looking at doing that now. <laughs> so you can sort of access your account and then send money around without having to worry about intermediaries. I think it's an interesting prospect. And yeah, it's, it's something that's, I think China's going to do that quite soon, actually. So the other thing you kind of touched upon there was what happens if you lose your passwords like Quadriga did? So what happens when you lose this private key? And people, a lot of people kind of acquired or, you know, got sent or bought or, you know, somehow got a, a bunch of Bitcoin in the early days and didn't really take it seriously. Didn't really know what was happening had their private key somewhere and sort of, yeah, the awareness wasn't really there. So they perhaps saved their private key on their laptop or something. And then a few years later, when Bitcoin's worth thousands of dollars, <laughs> you kind of think, shit, I could actually be pretty wealthy here. So that's when you hear about people like rummaging, <laughs> rummaging through the tip, <laughs> looking for looking for their old hard drives and things like that. If they can recover that private key, they can get that money out. But if they can't, then you know it's just going to sit there in that wallet forever. <laughs> There's been a lot of Bitcoin lost in that way. Just because there's no, you know, 
at the same time, if, if you're not reliant on any third party intermediary, if something goes wrong, there's no one to go to. Like you're taking responsibility fully for accessing. Winning the lottery, but throwing the ticket away and having no record <laughs> yeah, of that. It's, it's that, yeah. And there's no lottery to go to, to say like, hey, yeah, we printed you this ticket. Like uh, <laughs> there's just, it doesn't work that way, right? So, I mean, moving on from cryptocurrencies and Bitcoin, mm-hmm. what industries do you think blockchain will become you know, very relevant to or what industries are currently utilizing blockchain? Yeah, that's a good question. I think for that, there's a couple more things that I could bring in here. So one yeah. is that, you know, we're talking about, we talked about Bitcoin quite a bit and things like Bitcoin, they're meant to be sort of a sensor proof version of money that anyone can access and, you know, you can't be kicked off the network or whatever. That's an example of a purely public blockchain. So it's permissionless. Anyone can join, anyone can participate. Since then, we've had what's called permission blockchains or private blockchains that are installed in private networks. So if you have a business network, we talked about the supply chain, for example, you don't want like anyone to join. You don't want anyone to be able to kind of see exactly what's happening on your blockchain. You don't want everyone to see exactly, you know, every transaction or every sort of instance where that fish moves along the block, along the supply chain. So we have permissions and we have permissions can be customizable. So you can have permission to join, to access that ledger in the first place. You can have permissions to write sort of new update information on the ledger. You can have permission to read different aspects. So perhaps if you're you know, overseeing it, if you're sort of the fishery, you only might see those transactions that you're directly involved with. Why do you need to see what's happening with the supermarkets, you know, all the way down the supply chain, right? So there's customizable permissions and there's customizable things that you can see. And that's when it starts to get interesting for business because that's when you have the ability to record and you know, know that information is trustworthy and access the information that you need to, but not kind of overshare and not, you know, just give up all this data that's actually strategic for you. So I think that's when it becomes relevant. And that's when we see, you know, these enterprise blockchain applications are typically in business networks where they've already been sharing information themselves, but now there's kind of a more secure, more trusted way of doing it. And then sort of customizing those permissions so that you don't, yeah, you don't give up like strategic data. So to contrast that with the Bitcoin example, you could have like our banks might do this. They're kind of doing this anyway in a lot of places. But if a network of banks, you know, has to reconcile transactions between them, if I was sending money to your bank, and instead of them using their own record keeping process, they could have a private blockchain between the banks themselves, which would then reconcile those transactions. So they have a shared ledger of who holds what. So I'm sending you money and we don't know any different, right? But our banks all of a sudden have this really efficient kind of secure way of, of reconciling those payments at the back end. That's where that difference is, right? So there's a private blockchain solution to transferring money, but then they probably won't cost saving onto us. <laughs> so there's different ways in which you can do this. There's kind of different solutions. One's kind of augmenting an existing process where those banks are still sort of acting as those intermediaries. And the other is saying, well, if we can make that private blockchain between the banks public, what do we need the banks for? So, you know, obviously there's other things, you know, the points of access, how do we get in? How do we, you know, what does the common person know about having a wallet? And, you know, how do I get that on my phone? All this kind of stuff. There's, there's obviously, you know, intermediary services available, but there's no single actor, you know, or group of actors controlling the plumbing, basically, that basic infrastructure. So I think there's a combination for businesses that there's a combination of like, can we do something to augment what we already do? You know, can we just trace this fish along the supply chain or can we reconcile payments between banks? And that's kind of, that's sort of a fairly incremental solution. And it's really just about chasing efficiency gains. So let's try to get traceability, transparency and greater efficiencies in data access and data transfer and recording things. And then when you start to get really sort of disruptive is when you think about, all right, well, Say in the future, we have, you know, these really 
kind of scalable public blockchains, customizable permissions at the individual level, and then different ways of automating the transfer of value, you know, if certain conditions are met, so you can bring in other technologies as well, then can we start to actually transform how organizations work? So the other piece, again, a very long-winded answer, the other piece to, to this, so we've got permissions, right? So we can, you know, customize what people see. The other piece of this is uh, something called a smart contract. And that's when we say, all right, I want to send value to you. But if we have a contract in advance and certain conditions are met, we could actually trigger something that happens on the, on the blockchain where I send money to you as soon as those conditions are met. So it's, you're starting to automate the transfer of value there. And I'll give an example in a minute, but basically the sort of a real world analogy for this is a vending machine. So if I would have, it works on this sort of if then logic. So if I put a certain amount of money in, then I press these buttons, my drink will come out or whatever it is that will come out. So it's pre-programmed logic that as soon as certain conditions are met, something will happen and no one has to make any decisions for that. If we were to link this to a blockchain, then we would say, all right, you're an artist and you put a video online and I watch your video. Then... As soon as I watch your video, you know, we can see that that's happened. Then something moves from my account to yours, you know, a few cents or, you know, whatever the video is worth to you. Or if I watch the first 10 seconds, maybe one smart contract executes. And then if I watch the whole thing, another smart contract executes and I pay more. But all of a sudden we have this model where you've got the ability for, you know, an artist or a producer to connect directly with the consumer on a distributed network where no one owns or controls sort of the protocol itself. And then this money is flowing automatically. So now we can start to have, you know, what does that mean for these online business models that I talked about before? Before we needed some intermediary there to say that, yeah, these, these are both real people and um, I'm going to send the money from one to another once these conditions are met. We can start to change the scope of intermediation here. I'm not saying we can fully get rid of intermediaries. That's kind of a very long way away if it ever happens. But we're changing the scope for needing that middleman to do all those activities there. So I think that's when it becomes quite transformative for business. When you start to think about, all right, what can we automate here? How can we actually not only access this shared information and know that it's real, how can we start to automate the transfer of value when certain conditions are met? So yeah, am I, am I still making sense? Or? <laughs> I mean, that's good. My mind's just racing in terms of how marketers could use it. I mean, you say like if a mm-hmm. musician put a music video up and the fan watched the whole thing, then the musician gets paid directly. Yeah. Like that could you know, potentially cut out, like you said, cut out the intermediaries, cut out spot, you know, someone like Spotify or Apple Music. And it'd be interesting in the sense of, do you see this as being something that advertisers could t- start to use where, you know, if I was a company and I want a person like you to watch a certain product video or something like that, I could then target you directly rather than going through a network or something like that. Is that where you see it potentially going for, or, or where do you see it potentially going for marketing or for marketers? All right, I'll see if I can start with the more incremental model first, and then I'll go to that more transformative model that you're kind of describing, if that works. If we think incrementally, like if you're selling a product, say you're a company that makes t-shirts. At the moment, you're marketing your t-shirt based on you know what it looks like. It's sort of what you call the product attributes. So we know a lot about the, what the t-shirt looks like and how it feels because we can see it. We don't know a lot about how that t-shirt got there at the moment. So one thing I think is interesting, about having something like blockchain combined with sensory technologies and, and having this trusted you know, source of information for along the supply chain is that you could actually start to capture what you might call process attributes of how that t-shirt was created. So was it created in a factory? You know, did it use sustainable cotton, organic cotton? 
was it created in a factory where the staff were happy? Like you could actually, like Levi's is doing this, Levi's, the jeans companies, they have a, a questionnaire or a survey for the workers in the Mexican factories. And because they know it's sort of anonymized that data and they can have direct access to the blockchain without anyone interfering with it, they know that, you know, there's no fear of their managers kind of forcing them to <laughs> respond in a particular way. So you could actually get really accurate data on were these people in the factory satisfied? Was this transported with sustainable, you know, like sustainable energy? So all of these things, how did this t-shirt get here? All of a sudden you have two versions of the same t-shirt made in different factories with slightly different materials, but one has all these process attributes that we care about. You know, maybe it's fair trade, but we can actually verify exactly what were the conditions like in the factory, you know, all these different aspects of, of how that t-shirt got there. So I would say one thing for marketing there is if people valued those things and they're willing to pay a premium for, you know, the, the t-shirt that was the happy t-shirt, basically, sustainable t-shirt, then you could actually compete based on your value chain rather than just based on the final product. So I think that's something for marketing in terms of like, what are you actually marketing? You're not just marketing the final thing anymore. You're marketing kind of every step along the journey of which it's made. I'm sure that that already happens in some cases, but I think we have an opportunity for sort of a more granular approach or sort of like this, it, it sort of expands the scope of that opportunity. Is that resonating? Or <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I mean, you hear it now. I mean, there's customers or consumers just trust a lot of what a brand will say you know they'll say yeah. oh yeah where there's lots of fashion brands now who come out and say these are all fair trade or sweatshop free and that sort of thing but having that trusted or i guess if it's on the blockchain and it's you're able to actually verify it it's not just a claim from them so i think food as well like food traceability is like you know yeah. we do a bit of work with coffee and you know like having you could say oh it's from a fair trade and organic coffee farm and and then it's and you could track the process so there's a lot of claims that brands and marketers make and then often they're caught out because they're trusting someone on the ground at the local level to say those things as well whereas if it was on the blockchain there's there's no way to sort of hide or yeah shy away from it yeah. So providing that the blockchain is distributed, right? So anyone, I could stand up a blockchain and if I'm the only one supporting it, then, <laughs> you know, I could say this is on a blockchain, I'm, I'm the only one supporting it, right? But of course, these, you have to sort of audit the blockchain itself to ensure that it was distributed across the supply chain so that no single actor in the supply chain could corrupt something that was happening. That's the premise, right? So if it's implemented correctly. Sorry, would it be industries then that it's like take charge and say, you know, like the specialty coffee industry, for example, we're going to set up a blockchain and then all the farms and producers and suppliers would have access to that private yeah. network? They could do that, yeah. There's various ways you could do it. You could do it with an existing network. So you could do it just with like a vertically integrated, basically, in a particular supply chain. And that's typical, like Walmart's done that. Walmart stood up a blockchain and said, okay, all these participants in our supply chain are going to be nodes. And and of course, what Walmart did is say, you know, you're only going to see as, as each supplier along the way, they did it with their fresh uh, lettuce, the leafy green vegetables, because that's one that's kind of prone to contamination and, and really expensive if you get it wrong. <laughs> so they said, you're all going to kind of run nodes here. You're going to you know, participate in this blockchain. You're going to update the ledger. We get to see everything and you get to see the things that you're directly involved with. And the difference with Walmart is that, you know, Walmart can say, do this or get out of my supply chain. Whereas in other industries, it might not, you know, it really depends on the power dynamics, how you set that up and how it's governed. So, and especially around term, in terms of like, does anyone actually own the IP of the blockchain? Does anyone own any aspect of it? Or is it kind of, do we sort of share that cost and then just ensure that you own the data that's, uh, that's attributed to you? And then, you know, how, like, how do we manage those permissions? These governance challenges, like the, it, it kind of really depends on, on the use case. But yeah, that's a whole 
kind of can of worms there. <laughs> How do you actually design this? Often, if you want to move quickly, it's good to be Walmart because <laughs> you can force people to do it and you can make them uh, abide by your rules. Other industries, so there's a, the automotive industry has done this. They're trying to have, so the idea would be that your car has basically a kind of, you would call it a wallet as well, but basically your car has a unique history. So anytime that, well, from the time the car is manufactured, all the parts that go into it, and then every time that it's serviced, you would update the car's like wallet. So that would carry that with you. The car would carry that wallet around with it and all the data that goes into the car's wallet, then the car would be able to, you know, you would be able to share that with the next mechanic. So instead of having this, you know, piece of paper that or the, that, that book that you keep in the, in the glove yeah, box yeah. And, and sometimes people update it. And then when you buy a car, you're like, how the hell do I know this is real? Or there's like 10 years missing. You would have something that's kind of immutable. Everyone contributes to it. And yeah, you, you can fully access it. So imagine kind of what that means for, Firstly, maintaining the car where you own it and then the resale value because you know exactly where that car's been, right? Same thing with any sort of like even bigger machinery like airplanes are doing this, like Boeing's setting this up as well for, for their thing because it's, it's quite complex and lots of moving be, parts, lots of things being replaced. It'd be huge for helicopters. I was chatting to a mate who talked about, you know, helicopters and the servicing, you know, you have to service them every certain amount of kilometers or something mm. like that. And there's, there's people who sort of wind back the clock and things like yeah. that. I mean, yeah. you, it's like the classic Ferris, that, right? Ferris Bueller with the Ferrari and put it up on blocks yeah. and put it in reverse. It stops any of that. Yeah, exactly. So you can see that, you know, at least once those records are there, they haven't been tampered with. It's not to say that the mechanics, you know, doesn't, you know, of course they can bullshit when they put the data in. Like it's that garbage in, garbage out type logic. But there's certain controls you can put around that as well. And, you know, if the, if the car's logging, like, exactly how many kilometers it has, you know, updating automatically, then there's no human that has to, um, that can kind of mess around with that. Then, yeah, there's, certain, there's ways to get accurate records and put controls around it. So, I guess, um, sorry, coming back to the sort of how do you actually set up those networks, what they did in the automotive industry was they got all these automotive manufacturers and then lots of their OEMs, so the equipment manufacturers, and they basically said, all right, let's create a unified standard for everybody so that we can have this basic blockchain standard so that when we know that data is going to be, you know, everyone can kind of access and read the same data. We need a sort of a coherent data structure so that we can, um, so we can actually do this across different providers. It's not just like if you have a Ford, then you have to get a service in the same place if you want your record to be updated. But yeah, there's the sort of the downside of that. It's kind of the opposite to the Walmart scenario, right? You're dealing with lots of competitors and you're trying to create a network. It's great that everyone's there, everyone's invested, but it takes a really long time to move anywhere with it. So I think this past year, their main achievements after a couple of years were they've got a common standard for when a car is born. They can record the birth of a car <laughs> and everybody's on board with this, with this common standard. But everything that happens afterwards hasn't been worked out yet. So, so there's a fair way to go. So I think like you can imagine like once there's scale and once everybody has access to these records it's kind of that rising tide lifts all boat all boats kind of logic in that everybody will benefit from this accurate data whether it's a plane or a car or a helicopter or you know something along the supply chain everyone kind of benefits it reduces fraud it kind of uh yeah improves transparency and, and you get the data that you need but yeah it just does take a long time to figure out whereas um so that would be sort of the augmenting model that i was talking about this sort of incremental model this is something we do already, but can we do it better? Um, the the kind of the more transformational model. So there's a couple of things. Well, one in digital marketing. If we think about, we take the analogy with music again. There's a lot of. So I don't know a lot about digital marketing. I got to say, but 
from my understanding, there's a lot of fraud going on with, and a lot of money's lost when people actually look at ads. Yeah. I mean, there'll be cases of if you're running AdWords and you're spending $30, if you've got a competitive industry. So if I was advertising our business, you know, branding Brisbane or something like that, we might pay $30 per click on a thing. And there could be like, what's to stop a competitor jumping on Googling and clicking on my ad that's at the top three times. I've just spent 90 bucks for, you know, for someone who's spending no time on the site or something like that. So there's a real risk there around either humans doing it or bots doing it. And I think there are programs set up, but yeah, there's definitely an opportunity. If you're in a a competitive and expensive industry for that sort of thing, there's a Mm -hmm. real chance of losing quite a lot of money quite quickly. Okay. So I'm not exactly sure how I would address that problem off the top of my head. I'd have to probably think about that a little bit, but let's think about, let's go back to what blockchain's really good at doing. So it's really good at recording stuff or you knowing that the data is accurate after you've recorded it. So if we take ads analogous to songs, because I think it's easy for me to talk about, but a lot of money goes missing in royalties. If I'm a music artist and I put my songs on Spotify, YouTube, wherever else, I have to rely on Spotify and YouTube to track how many players my song gets and if someone re-uploads it or if they, you know, yeah, it could be re-uploaded multiple times and, and a lot of royalties actually go missing just through sort of faulty record keeping. They estimate between 10 and 15% of these royalties go missing. And I think perhaps it's similar with ads, right? Like if you're paying all this money for ads, you don't exactly know, you're kind of trusting these intermediaries, like Google, whoever else that's putting up those ads and saying, yeah, I got this many clicks and you know, how do I know that, right? So there's a lot of trust here in, in these, these single actors and perhaps they're not incentivized to keep it, to maintain these records as, as accurately as perhaps they could. So one option here would be to, there's a few companies trying to do this now, is set up a, a blockchain that's kind of separate, but that augments. So if your songs or ads or whatever they are get tagged and then the blockchain, you know, it, it gets tracked online. So anytime that tag gets like something happens, you know, someone looks at your ad or someone listens to your song, it gets logged on that sort of third party blockchain. So it's still using the existing networks. So nothing's happened. Nothing's changed in terms of Spotify or YouTube or whatever, but you've now got this really trusted third party record, this third party ledger of exactly how many plays you've got. And then that, that's a way to kind of make up that 10 to 15% that you might be losing otherwise. So that's the sort of, again, like an incremental way of helping traceability and helping track and have sort of more accurate records. Again, like I said, you'd have to make sure that, that blockchain itself is you know, unable to be tampered with. It's sufficiently distributed and it's kind of worked out, whatever. But the next thing is, so kind of what you were coming at was if, um, if I were to put something online and then enable you know smart contracts and there was some kind of you know cryptocurrency or there was like australian dollars represented as tokens and then everyone every time someone listened to my song i could have it on a separate platform so it's not this ad-based platform every time someone listened to my song they would pay me fractions of a cent or you know however much and then we start to create that sort of fundamentally new type of market so change the scope of intermediation you know, obviously we need someone to, to create the interface and all that kind of stuff. I'm not saying, again, like intermediaries disappear, but it's, it's different. It's a different way of doing things. And you can, can actually control or have more control over who listens to your music. You know, you can see when those, like what happened with those players and you can get that money transferred directly to you without ne- it necessarily having to travel through a third party or through some kind of intermediary. And you can set up those smart contracts so that it kind of pays your, you know, record label or whoever else needs to be paid in the process and it's sort of automated. So let's bring that, that back to marketing. Imagine a browser and this exists, it's called Brave Browser, where the users, the consumers could opt in to seeing ads and you could customize, all right, I'll see you know, this many ads and perhaps even you know, 
between these times of day or whatever. And then whoever's putting the ads up, so the companies that are advertising, every time someone looks at their ad or interacts with their ad, they pay the user directly. So you'd actually create a marketplace between the consumer and the advertiser or the, the, the organization that's advertising. And the intermediary doesn't, it's, it's not Google anymore, right? Like it's not, it's not that model where they're kind of, they're playing matchmaker and they're sort of, yeah, it's a completely different way of linking them up. That's pretty cool. Like if you could verify that that person was a qualified buyer, if it could sync in with their account history or like, you know, bank history to know that they're a real shopper and know that they're, you know, like a certain, they had a certain discretionary spending or something like that. I think brands would really be interested in that. I think the risk would be spending money on people who literally just sit on Brave Browser all day and get paid to watch ads. Oh, absolutely. And never, yeah, never but we already again. have that problem, right? So, and, yeah, yeah. And obviously Google has their own controls and Facebook and everyone else has their own controls of trying to work that out. And you would just have to put in a lot more controls. This is why this is, you know, this is, this is distant future stuff. I'm not saying it's going to happen anytime soon, but this is kind of theoretically possible. And this is, if you're in digital marketing, this is the kind of stuff that you would need to be thinking about. You're like, is there a possibility over time? Like when you're like, could some of this stuff be automated and what is more likely to be automated first? Because if you're hanging all your hopes on this, like, you know, being this giant intermediary model and that can be chipped away over time, then you're going to have to be thinking like, (laughs) where do we fit in in this new world? How can we actually provide value rather than just, collect everyone's data and sort of, um, yeah, yeah, be this sort of... Plus, I mean, it only takes Facebook and Google getting together and saying, actually, you know what, we're happy to cut someone in on this or create a service of this and then it just kills that new player potentially. Yeah, I guess it, it, it kind of depends on what it is. I think, I don't know, like I, what sort of path this, this transition might take is, yeah, who knows, right? I just think that Conceptually, if the individual is able to own and control the data that they produce through their actions, because at the moment, the data that I produce is taken, like harvested, all that data and metadata is taken by the company. So Google, Facebook, whoever else. And they track you across sites and they have tons of data points and they buy it from other providers as well. So somehow Facebook knows how much I earn. I mean, they, they buy that from someone, right? I'm not putting that on Facebook. So they have a ton of data about you and it's theirs. So the, the difference in the model that I'm talking about is if I were to own the data that I produce or own my personal data and, and my identifying data, blockchain actually enables me to do that because you know I can store it via my wallet, perhaps not on the blockchain because that's if I want to be forgotten, then I, I can't take it off. But we can have it accessible through my wallet on the blockchain and then I can decide who gets access to my data. So if I want, if I want to allow advertisers to, to promote stuff to me, then I could say, yeah, you can know some things about me or I'll actually give you some of my data and you can pay me for it rather than you know, Google or, or Facebook or whoever else just harvesting it through surveillance and then you know, doing what they do, basically bundling it and then taking that uh, behavioral surplus. So you're saying blockchain could be used for like a huge opt-in model for the person to own their data? Yeah, like that's for, really... for each individual <laughs> to own their data and have a purely opt-in model to brands? Yeah, I think... I think that's a better way of putting it. So, I think a lot of people I know would love that thing. There's a few people I know in the cybersecurity and IT space who absolutely hate, you know, the idea of Facebook and and Google yeah. and social, yeah, and you know, think... these different social media platforms having access to that. So, um, yeah, I think yeah, that would so... uh, really resonate for them. <laughs> so, I, I mean, I'm hoping so, right? And it, it will happen incrementally, and it will happen slowly. But it's let's dial it back a bit. So, let's take something as simple as healthcare, right? So, healthcare. In Canada, at least I'm living in Canada at the moment. I don't know if it's the same in Australia, but in Canada, you legally own your healthcare data. 
So I actually own the data that, that is relevant to me for all, all my healthcare data, right? That's produced in Canada. The unfortunate thing is that I don't own the records. So I go to a medical provider and they keep records on me and I don't have custodianship of those records and I don't have the rights to access those records unless I ask for them. So if I go to one healthcare provider and then I go to another one, you know, I want to go see a doctor and I want to go see a physio and I need some medical record. I have to ask them to send from one to another. So we have these data silos and uh, that's essentially how it works. You know, how your data is kept online, except it's less visible and it's less kind of, <laughs> you kind of don't really know what's happening. It's just sort of the stuff's been, you just been tracked by these companies, right? So what a blockchain could do is give me the ability to own that data. And so I would keep it, Again, perhaps not on the blockchain, but somewhere else. Like I could keep it like on a private cloud where it's accessible to me. And then I could use my, the blockchain based permissions to provide access. You know, if I go see the doctor, they update some part of my record, just like that we saw with the car or with the airplane. Then I go to the physio and I say, yeah, you can view this part of my medical history and I provide them permission to do it or I provide them permission to like run, run queries on it. You know, have you had this test or like when was the last time you had a tetanus shot or something and it would answer it. So there's different ways you can do it, right? You don't even have to share the data itself. You can just share aspects of it. And then, okay, all of a sudden I have control and I have custodianship and I have the rights to access of my own healthcare data. So that's a pretty simple model, right? And it's just, yeah, conceptually that's, that's what's possible. And then we could take that to any other context. So instead of healthcare data, we have social media data or whatever else, you know, what you do, where you're walking around on your location data on Google maps and stuff. But then I would say instead of some other company collecting that for me and then selling it, you know, bundling it, analyzing it, and then trying to sell me stuff, I would be able to donate it perhaps, or I could, if I was to donate it to research or I could try and sell it. So it's just a different model where individuals can play a role in that market rather than just being sort of the fuel for companies to or the raw material for companies to kind of <laughs> aggregate and then and then create markets out of it's really interesting with healthcare because i think it's something that they've done here with i think they had like mygov or there was a health record essentially and yeah. a lot of people were opting out of it i mean i think the idea is brilliant in the sense of you know if you're on a medication or a script and you're traveling and you don't have that script you could go to any chemist or any doctor and they could pull up that file i haven't looked too much into it i know i, know I opted out just mm. because a lot of other people told me to, um, but um, <laughs> essentially, you know, it's instead of the government collecting that data and storing that information, you're protecting it yourself. Is that right? Not exactly. So there's a couple of things. And I think this was, so again, I don't pretend to be an expert on my gov. I, I'm the same as you. I sort of started coming and was like, well, I'll wait till I can actually look into this. But there's a difference between ownership, which is, you know, you could legally own something, but if you don't own the records, then you don't have custodianship of it, right? So my gov they might be eventually looking to go to a distributed solution like a, a blockchain and having people's individual healthcare records kept somewhere else. So actually Tim Berners-Lee is the founder of the web. He's trying to create something called pods, which would be something similar to this. So you keep your personal information in, a, in what he's calling a pod and you could keep it on your own server or you could keep it in this kind of encrypted server that they'll provide you. So there's a difference between, what I'm saying is there's a difference between where that data is stored at the back end and your access to it. So if like what my gov is doing, I think currently, and this is this may be completely wrong, so grain of salt here, but they're just consolidating all those records at the back end. So it's still a big central institution that's storing that data. And that's what people are worried about, from my understanding. Because the attack there's so many attack vectors there, right? Like if you could hack this big central <laughs> organization, then you know you have everyone's full medical history, right? 
My understanding is it's that. So if you were to take that and then distribute it, if you were to have, you know, sort of a distributed model for how that was stored and if it was split up and encrypted and, and put in different places, it would be far more secure. So it'd be really difficult to, you know, there wouldn't be one place to break into to get people's records, but the outcome would still be the same. So if you wanted to access your records and then, you know, you would be the one that would be able to piece it all together and, and view it as normal. But at the back end, that data is split up sent across the distributed network and encrypted very different from having it all stored in like a single cloud you know like you know in a couple of warehouses um, and you know the government server farms or whatever so again like i might just be talking shit that was my understanding that it's there's at the back end too centralized and so I've, yeah it's this is where you start to get into sort of um where the information is actually stored, right? <laughs> it's always comforting when you're doing a podcast with an industry expert and they sign off with, again, I might just be talking shit. Yeah, well, you asked <laughs> no, me about I'm a specific kidding. example. I'm not pretending yeah, to know anything about it. I'm just saying. No, I'm kidding, I'm kidding. <laughs> Maybe we can pause it. Um, I'll, I'll do a quick Google. <laughs> no, no, that's all right. <laughs> so we can actually, if you check afterwards and if I'm resembling anything that's actually what's happening, it might be valuable because I think the point I'm getting at it is there's a difference between it's just like a single fa- uh, point of failure there, isn't it? Like with yeah. the MyGov thing. Like it's exactly. just, it's, exactly. it's, you know, like if you hack that, then you've got a lot of information there. Yeah. Yeah. So there's, there's different ways of bringing data together and, and storing mm-hmm. data. And, and so this distributed model is like, you can be sure that it's really difficult for, for people to get hold of it. But if, it's, um, if all you're doing is consolidating records from lots of different providers into one place, then you're kind of creating a honeypot for hackers just to go after that one, <laughs> one thing. Yeah. So, I mean, I guess I'm going to move on to some personal stuff soon just mm-hmm. to give the audience a bit of background on you. But um, so based on what you've said, I mean, there's some really good examples for marketing, for food traceability. Are there any other industries that you can think of that would find blockchain, you know, really applicable to them? So we, we deal with a lot of people in heavy industries. So be it mining or agriculture, construction, things like that. So, yeah, there's a few. I can talk about all of them if you want. It's the conceptual, it's the same thing, right? So... I think construction might be a little bit different. So but we, let's take mining agriculture. It's like commodity type industries first. So again, if you're tracking a commodity all the way along a supply chain and, and a, a lot of the early implementations of blockchain and supply chain were commodities where there's a high price of being wrong and there's high value for being right. So diamonds was a, was a, perhaps one of the early examples because it's worth a lot and it, it's, you know, it's a big cost of um, being wrong. Like if you have blood diamonds in your supply chain, that's a really bad thing, right? So one thing is that, yeah, any sort of commodity industry should be interested in this once the business case is there. So once it's cheap enough and, and you can get everyone on board and it, again, like I said, there's those complications with actually setting up the network, which is why you need to be very careful because you can govern different things based on what rules you put into the blockchain itself. Then you can govern things based on what rules you put around permissions for you know, information access and how things are recorded. And then there's rules around like who can join the network. So the network or the, the sort of the business layer there's different rules you can put in place for that. So anyone can, yeah, this is all happening in, in supply chains, just that traceability and accurate data is kind of interesting. But I think one interesting implication of this that perhaps doesn't get talked about as much is that supposing you had, remember we talked about the t-shirt, we have all these different types of information now that you didn't have before. It's not just where, where this thing came from. It's like everything that happened on its way. Could we actually start to decommoditize commodities like if that makes sense. So if you've got like zinc from a really happy mine transported sustainably, all this kind of stuff, I don't really know how minerals markets work. I think they're, they're price takers to be honest. So it's probably like quite far away. So sort of, uh, 
might take more than this, or maybe maybe um, minerals isn't the right sort of industry to be thinking about this. But supposing you had two commodities that were otherwise identical, but one had completely different like when like means of being created, could there be two different price points for what's ostensibly exactly the same thing? We do it with energy already, right? Like we do, you know, the same thing. You're whatever's keeping the lights on. If it comes from renewable sources, we might be willing to pay more. So it's just a more granular version of that. I think that's what's interesting. Yeah, well, I mean, it could have huge implications for, and I think it could be either the shareholders or the customers who generate the demand for that or like, you know, create the demand for that. Yeah. So if you could choose between like the same way you could offset carbon offset your plane ticket, you might be able to make sure that your next iPhone is is produced in a, is not only like the materials mined for that were were mined in a safe and, you know, fair environment you could you know all the way along you could trace that that was done in an ethical matter exactly yeah so one thing is i mean exactly like you said i hope there's a demand pull for this because it will clean up the industries you know at first it might create a competitive advantage for the ones you know for the first movers and the ones that are doing this and then as soon as you know we start to value that then you can have different price points but ultimately i hope it just cleans up a lot of these supply chains and brings transparency and, and certainty to where you're getting your stuff from so it might eventually just become the new normal. But uh, during that process, yeah, there's massive opportunities for, for competitive advantage if, you're, if you do it right. And the other thing you mentioned was construction. And I think obviously this is just like the same supply chain stuff happening there. You know, we want to know where stuff's coming from. We want to know if you can update where you're getting all your materials from. It helps with planning and all that kind of stuff. Like if you can have accurate, you know, up-to-date records across providers you know, throughout the supply chain. But the other thing is uh, payments. In construction, so construction projects are obviously incredibly complex. You have whoever's leading the project in the big construction company that basically has all their subcontractors that do most of the work, and then they take months to pay them, and uh, they're essentially building the buildings on the subcontractors' credit cards because they're you know they're the ones putting all this work, and then they get paid later on. So theoretically, what you could do, and I say theoretically, I'll come back to this in a minute, is set up smart contracts that say once certain parts of the building are completed and or once the you know the the primary contractor gets paid then automatically the smart contracts execute and all the suppliers that are relevant to that part of the building get paid automatically so it's like you no longer have that kind of pay when you get paid mentality where there's this opacity and it's like oh yeah we just don't have the money like you can't get away with that anymore it's like as soon as something's like signed off on all the checks are there then the main contractor gets paid and then all the subcontractors get paid automatically I say this is theoretically possible. Of course, it's possible. You know, that, that would be a nice, <laughs> a nice outcome for everybody at the bottom end. But it's another kind of question around power dynamics in the network. Like, why the hell would you want to do that <laughs> if you're the company at the top? Why don't you just hang on to that money like you do now? I mean, they, <laughs> you can make money on that before, you know, for months before you actually have to pay anyone. So, again, like, yeah, conceptually, and like it, it would bring a lot of efficiencies and, and you know, bring a lot of transparency to that industry and to construction projects. But in practice, like if you're reliant on that large actor kind of implementing the project in the, like, or implementing the blockchain-based payment infrastructure in the first place, like what incentives they have to do that? It's actually worse for them. I know of one that's actually happened in BC. They set this up and it was the same logic. Like, can we do that and sort of automate payments once certain conditions are met? Yeah, great, it works. Then they went to a couple of construction companies and said, can we get some data from projects you've done in the past? And we'll just test it. We'll test it using past data and we'll see how much we could have sped up and, and what efficiencies we could have got using that past data. So comparing it with existing processes. And these companies were like, no, nah, we don't, can't really share anything 
with you. And the reason they don't want to share anything is because there's kind of, there's a few skeletons in the closet <laughs> and um, <laughs> there's probably a bunch of dodgy shit that we're doing <laughs> that they didn't want anyone to kind of look at or scrutinize very closely. So yeah, there's probably a few applications in construction, sort of um, short answer. But again, you've got to consider like, what's the, you know, what are the value propositions for each actor that would be part of this network? Because again, it's an inter-organizational play and it's bringing efficiencies to the network. And then, you know, what are the existing power dynamics and how, how much of an incentive is there for those really powerful actors to bother? Well, I mean, yeah, it presents a, a bit of a challenge because if you want to enter into these things, obviously you've got to show all the, like the information, it's only as good as the input sort of thing. So if you're not sharing all the right information, if you're not willing to share and be open with it, then the quality of that will be, you know, it'd be half-baked sort of thing. So sort of like if yeah. you're willing to get into it and share everything, it, you know, it has the potential to drive efficiencies but it's coming down to the company. Like, and I think that's where you touched on before. Like I think it will take certain industries to be sort of forced into it, you know, like, like that Walmart power dynamic. You know, Walmart says to their suppliers of lettuce, you have to report on these things if you want to sell mm-hmm. through our thing. Yeah, exactly. And, and I think that's a great point. And that's kind of a lot of the, so I, said, I mentioned before, a lot of the uh, consulting work I do is sort of, Firstly, there's basic education. So, you know, what is this? Is this is this bullshit? Is this a scam? Is the price of Bitcoin going up or down? You know, that kind of stuff. Those are the questions I get early on. The second thing is, you know, well, the other questions like, okay, if I have this, you know, doesn't everyone get to see my data? And you're like, well, no, you know, there's ways of managing permissions and, and we can customize that. So once people get their heads across that, it's still very difficult. Once you even get to that sort of trying to design how that network might work, you have to leave a certain mindset behind, which is all of our data is a strategic asset and we can't share it with anyone. Like we have to maintain control and ownership of these, you know, this core infrastructure or of this protocol. We have to own the IP for for everything that's happening. That's a pretty hard mindset for people to break out of because if you think about like those intermediaries, especially that I was talking about before, that is their business model, right? That get as much data as you possibly can, become a bottleneck and and control the conduits through which people transact and then uh, dominate by doing that. <laughs> and this is a totally different model. So even in networks where, where it's not so much, you know, your core resource might not be data, it's not necessarily like the, the main asset. It's still very, very sort of strategically kind of important, or, or at least they think it's very strategically important. So the willingness for people to give up <laughs> different parts of information to gain these efficiencies that will benefit everybody, again, that kind of rising tide, lifting all boats type thing. It's pretty difficult to do because you still get people trying to behave opportunistically and saying, well, yeah, maybe we can just like carve out a bit more. And people get really confused because it's a different logic. Like where are we actually collaborating and where can we compete? Because the places you can compete are not the same as where you'd be competing before. Yeah. I think that's a great place to wrap up. An analogy here would be climate change, I think is actually a pretty good one. So if you think about the history of climate change, first we had to decide climate change was a thing. And that happened in like the 60s and 70s. But then the, the initial approaches, nations weren't used to, like nation states, so national governments weren't used to collaborating at a level like this. So they weren't used to this idea that if we all sacrifice something, if we all like give up something, then we'll all benefit. And it's kind of this commons logic, right? So the tragedy of the commons is, you know, there's different ways of addressing that. But they had to come to this idea that, you know, everybody needs to give up something uh, so that we can address climate change because this is a global problem. We can't have national solutions for a global problem. We can't try to be selfish. And we've kind of taken a step backwards in that in that logic in the last few years um, with certain governments. But the, the logic is the same. So we managed to change it over time. And I think something similar might actually happen in business. Like we might start to say, once people realize like what is 
technologically feasible and sort of the efficiencies that can be gained at a broader level, they'll start to understand, okay, we can't take this fully competitive approach to doing this. We need to make some concessions for this broader efficiency. And then what it means is we'll just compete in different ways than we used to. You know, how this change actually takes place, will we? it's going to be interesting, but it'll happen over time. So Chris, thanks for taking us through that. Now a bit on you, like what do you do outside of work? And I guess for you, like how do you take a break from teaching and from consulting? Yeah, I, I wish I knew. <laughs> so part of what I do is also research. So there's this sort of stuff that I'm thinking about all the time. I'd love to be able to kind of touch a little bit more, but yeah, I, I exercise, live in Vancouver. So there's plenty to do around outside. I mean, when, when you're allowed to, social distancing at the moment, uh, <laughs> doesn't lend itself to most of those things but yeah try and get out as much as possible pretty typical i think you and i are quite similar what, what do you do <laughs> well i realized i go to coffee shops and yeah that's what i do <laughs> restaurants restaurants and bars and, and go to the gym Love that kind of stuff yeah and we're, we're not allowed to play golf at the moment here so yeah i'm pretty limited in what we do yeah um, so all, all the stuff that i generally like to do you know get out and hike and explore bc and hang out with the mates <laughs> go to gigs travel. and stuff you know all, all the stuff <laughs> travel yeah exactly all the stuff you're basically not allowed to do so really like I love the work that I do in terms of how it ties into my life because I get to sit in cafes a lot that's you know <laughs> that's what I enjoy and uh, yeah I don't know that's do you have any favorite books novels business books personal development books that sort of thing what are you reading <sighs> yeah what am I reading personal development not not so much recently I got I got quite far into kind of psychology focused personal development quite a while ago but what do I read I read stuff for work I read books on tech um, which isn't that exciting because it just gives me a different perspective and helps me explain it but for myself I don't know I love dystopian future books like 1984 it maybe sounds really cliche but I think it's actually increasingly relevant and yeah I actually love the way it's written that's uh I like Slaughterhouse Five Kai Vonnegut like that kind of stuff I like those sort of yeah perhaps like relatively cliche <laughs> classics and uh what's my reading well yeah and and sort of that that sociological approach that i take i love books on shared meanings i mean again it's another cliche one but sapiens and homodeus those kinds of books like love that kind of stuff love the style of writing and uh, shared meanings and being able to question meanings and think around it like what are the assumptions we're actually making I think that's uh, Yuval Noah Harari. Yeah. The, yeah. Yeah. I think he, we've talked in the past about how brilliant he is at, um, at contextualizing like complex ideas and mm. you know, through stories and things like that. Yeah, exactly. So it's actually, again, if I go back to, you know, the reason I like looking at new markets and new tech is, is one thing, it's kind of inherently interesting to think about the topic itself, but it's and, and how we construct new meanings around it. I find that really interesting. And a lot of Ferrari's work is, you know, how we organize societies based on you know, shared fictions, things like that. He talks a lot about that. And the other thing is the way he explains it. So as, you know, someone that's trying to get better and better at teaching, I love being able to sort of, if you can get across something and understand it quite well, then you should be able to explain it in, in simple words. I don't know how I've done that throughout, <laughs> um, yeah, no, previously I've, in this I've, podcast, but, but I think like he, he, he's, he's someone that I would aspire to <laughs> in being able to do that because he does it incredibly well. Actually, when I wrote my dissertation, I was looking at um, sort of not just how new markets are constructed you know, from a sort of practical standpoint, but how stories and narratives and different perspectives around new markets were constructed and how they were used to try and get funding and support for new ventures. 
and because I was looking at story and it was sort of part of the thesis, I wrote my introduction as a story. <laughs> not sure, not sure if I really hit the mark, but I was like, whatever, you know, this is not not kind of an evaluated part of the thesis. They only really care about the papers and whether they're published. So yeah, I just I just took liberties with it. <laughs> Ended up writing as a narrative um, with a ton of references in there, <laughs> and um, yeah, tried to take a perspective on it. So tried just sort of yeah, again like always trying to think of new ways to communicate things in ways that resonate with the audience, you know, actually thinking about what is the audience I hear rather than just. I think you've done incredibly well today with the blockchain scenario. I mean, we're recording this on good Friday and you used fish as the food source of traceability. So that was, um, yeah, pretty, pretty timely, pretty relevant. (laughs) So what does success look like for you? That's a pretty big question, but uh, that's, a, that's, yeah. that's another big question. Yeah. So I don't know, being able to do what you love all the time. I think that's success, right? Like I, I, I wouldn't want to put, I'd be remiss to put, put a figure on it because I wouldn't have hit it. But, but yeah, success is to me is being able to, like I said before, being able to sit in coffee shops and, and think about stuff like this, you know, think about like how we construct meaning and think about you know, these bigger problems. That's why I've sort of taken this middle path between, you know, education research and consulting because it's like focusing on one is kind of you know, the research is, is, is perhaps a little bit esoteric in, in some ways and too long term to have sort of direct impact or measurable impact all the time the teaching is is great fun but yeah you know it's sort of a different different way of getting at things and, and you're kind of reproducing or, or sort of regurgitating knowledge rather than creating it and consulting's fun but it's very hands-on so if it, so i'm trying to get like a different piece of each and just the fact that I have time to think about the broader stuff and, and constantly question stuff through that combination has been really fun. So at the moment, yeah, success is kind of not, we're here in Vancouver for the best part of this year and then perhaps we're going to move back. So um, yeah, I'm looking fairly short term in terms of success. It's, it's, it's every day for me. <laughs> yeah. So I mean, that, that, and that's exciting for our audience because you could potentially bring some of the teaching and bring some of the education and information on blockchain back here to Australia for businesses here. But I mean, what are some things in closing, like what are some things that you wish more people knew about what you do or what you study? I mean, is there, you know, there's a lot of sort of misconceptions or, you know, misinformation on there. I mean, is there there stuff that you wish that the level of knowledge was higher or is it kind of good that there's there's a bit of, um, uh, you know, not uncertainty, but misinformation on it? Mm, that's an interesting question. So I, I wouldn't say it's actually the the knowledge itself. I would say it's the way that people acquire knowledge. Having done a PhD and having done you know work in this area and various other areas and, and especially dealing with new stuff, it's how we come to and I don't think this is limited to technology or, or business. It's um, how we come to learn or you know sort of acquire and trust information and then disseminate it. I, I think that process is a little bit broken. <laughs> we live in a world where you know you can kind of anyone can say anything and uh, there's sort of it's pretty easy, right? We've seen it with COVID nineteen bullshit just floating around on WhatsApp and it's like. <laughs> The, so the information itself, I mean, you can't fault people for not knowing something, but I think the process of, of acquiring and, and sort of digesting and, and evaluating and sort of critically analyzing information is something that we could kind of all benefit from taking a step back and thinking like, how do we actually do this? How do I know this is right? And, you know, what combination of things will help me trust this information? Is it like one is it's, you know, who told this to me and where did it come from in the first place? But a lot of it is, you know, being able to critically think like, is this logically consistent? Is this, you know, is this something that's real? Because, you yeah, know, it's, it's seen, seen a head, say bullshit too. Seen a headline <laughs> on Facebook and then just, 
I mean, it's as simple sometimes as copying and pasting something you read mm. into Google yeah. and just seeing who else has supported that, or if it's uh, if it's one headline, one one post that's just been circulated tons and tons of times. Yeah, and, and that's it. I think, and it's normal, right? Like it's well, Facebook is designed for that, and Facebook is designed to prey on our cognitive biases, and and it's kind of completely attuned to that. It's a reflection of us. So, you know, we, we can't blame people for that. And I'm lucky, I'm thankful that I went through the PhD process because you really, a massive part of learning about science is, you know, how knowledge comes to be and what perspectives there are, you know, what, what kinds of lenses we can look at the world through. You know, is the world absolute or is, you know, does everyone have a perspective that counts and when do they count? All those kinds of things. And how do we, how do we sort of critically, like, yeah, evaluate stuff? I'm thankful that I got that. So... I think it's it's something that doesn't come easily, and the the ways in which we collect information, we obviously have an overload. We have we're flooded with information all the time, and the way that it comes to us is is kind of designed to prey on our biases. So I don't think anyone's exactly at fault. I think it's just the way that things are set up kind of lends itself to that. Which I suppose is another way of of thinking about like if we were to have, you know, I am interested in kind of what does the future of social media look like? What does the future of marketing look like? All those kinds of things, specifically for those reasons, you know. Can we address bullshit information? Can we use blockchain to tag a video at its inception so we can tell, we can check back to that, you know, to that tag later on and know whether it's a deep fake? Has someone tagged with us yeah. since it's been made? All that kind of stuff. Like we can use tech to be able to do that. So, and you know, they're working on that now. Like when something was created, if someone actually said something, can we, are there ways that we can actually, ver- you know, use technology to, to say that this hasn't been tampered with since it came up? So, you know, this, this is all part of, yeah. There's lots of different parts to it. A lot of it's culture and some of it, you know, tech can be augmented by, by new tech. So, yeah, touches on a lot of things. Well, Chris, thanks so much for coming on and talking to me about it. It's been really, really good. I think my audience will get a lot of good insights and information out of this. So to wrap up, how can people find out more information about you or where can they go to learn more about you or what you do? Oh, that's a good question. I'm pretty shit in promoting myself <laughs> and I'm largely absent on social media. So can I... I mean, how are you disseminating these? Could I just give you an email address? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'll just, I'll just, I'll just put, an, I'll put an email on the thing. If anyone Give me on LinkedIn. That'd be, that'd yeah. be appropriate. All right. All right. I'll tag you on LinkedIn. And uh, if people want more information, they can reach out there. Yeah. And, and I want to say thanks so much for having me. Obviously, this has been a pleasure. Looking forward to hearing the other guests as well. Because, uh, yeah, it's, uh, sounds like you've got a cool format here. And um, obviously, love talking about this stuff. So if anyone does want to reach out, feel free to. You can, you can probably tell I like talking about this so yeah don't be shy yeah awesome all right thanks chris awesome thanks dan see you man thank you for listening to this episode of discover someone remarkable if you enjoyed it please share it with your network to support us please subscribe and leave a five-star review to learn more about us or the guests on this show visit dsrb.com.au slash podcast dsr branding exists to inspire people to love what their work represents We hope that this episode has inspired you to think differently.